morning. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. March 16th, 2016. Happy St. Patrick's Day early. We will have uh, next week World Kidney Day 2016, uh, presented by Dr. Adam Weinstein. And uh, to the bottom, yeah. Okay. I'm going to try something. So while Rick's cricking, while Rick's trying to fix something on the projector. Um, I'll share some up to some good. What good we've been up to. This is a letter that got written to the Laconia Daily Sun last month. To the Daily Sun, my name is Keith Schultz, and I have been playing football since I was seven years old. I am currently a senior at Laconia High School. With my hard work for the Sachems the past four years, I am fortunate enough to have made the Chad All-Star football game. That's in June 25th, by the way, down in uh, St. Anselm College. Both my older brother and I were born at Children's Hospital at Dartmouth, and I would like to take this opportunity to give back to Chad by being their top donor for this game because the hospital and David's house were very good to my family. If you'd like to donate to Chad in my honor, please go to Chad All-Star Football Org and click on my And this isn't an ad for Keith, but it's a, it's a, um, it's a nice letter that, uh, that a high schooler sub submitted in response. And I always appreciate when the kids are helping the kids. So um, keep an eye out. And that is in June 25th. Before then, there's the uh, Battle of the Badges on April 2nd, where police and firefighters similarly fundraise for an opportunity to um, play on Verizon Wireless arena's ice in Manchester. So uh, that's our up to some good for the day. Um, Julianne Mann joins us again for the continuing Chad Dermatology uh, mini fellowship series and we'll have another session in May but um, trying to condense a, a broad topic into a short talk but uh, we know Julianne's up to it. Good morning. I'm going to talk about infections and infestations today. And as I mentioned to Keith, this is a, a lecture that really I could probably give a four-part series on this. This is a huge topic, so this is by no means comprehensive, but I picked some of my favorites and some topics that I think you'll see in your practice regularly, but that um, are not the most common bread and butter. I have no conflicts of interest. So this morning, we'll, we'll focus a lot on Coxsackie virus A6 infection, which some of you may know about. Um, we'll talk about how that differs from classic hand, foot, and mouth disease. We'll define the relationship between arthropod bites and papular urticaria and identify clinical clues for each condition how to distinguish the two. We'll describe telltale signs of scabies infestation in infants and children, and then we'll do some fun potpourri cases at the end if we have time. So case one, this is a 21-month-old, otherwise healthy boy who attends daycare. About a week ago, his parents noticed that he had some mild upper respiratory type symptoms, and now he has these oval blisters on the soles of his feet, buttocks, and a few sores on the inside of his mouth. He's in good spirits. He's afebrile. He's eating and drinking a little less than usual, but still making wet diapers. So if you, if you focus on the soles of his feet, you can see these, you can see my cursor there, um, see these gray oval vesicles. And the more you look, the more of them you'll see on his feet. That's the clue to the diagnosis. Also some vesicles and erosions on the buttocks and a few little erosions on the inner buccal mucosa, labial mucosa. So this is classic hand, foot, and mouth disease. I'm sure you all see this regularly in your practices. Um, we pediatric dermatologists call this hand, foot, butt because the diaper area is almost always involved. So this picture here is really classic for your typical hand, foot, and mouth. So um, sometimes the diaper area will be what the parents come in for and they won't really even have noticed any oral lesions. Sometimes the oral involvement is very mild. Um, and the hands and feet sometimes are fairly subtle. 
So, as you all know, this is a widely recognized childhood exanthem. It's typically a mild illness, low-grade fever. The oral erosions can be quite painful, and some children um, will have substantially decreased PO intake. These gray-white oval vesicles and pustules on the palms and soles, and including the buttocks. Um, most often children under the age of five, late summer, early fall. And then the most common causes are Coxsackievirus A16, enteroviruses 71 and 2. And there have been clusters of severe complications reported in outbreaks. There was one reported in Taiwan a number of years ago where children can actually develop aseptic meningitis, sometimes a pneumonitis, encephalitis, um, and, and can be quite severe. And, and there, there are fatalities reported regularly. Spread by multiple routes, which is the, um, the reason why this, one of the reasons why this virus is so highly infectious. So it's spread via saliva, nasal secretions, respiratory droplets, fecal oral root, and through blister fluid. So just about every um, mode of infection there is. Um, outbreaks typically occur in daycare centers and preschools, and sometimes there has been common source exposure identified, such as contaminated swimming pool water, that's um, via the fecal oral route, um, and so kids develop these blisters, they crest over within 10 to 14 days, they resolve without scarring. The children are most contagious during the first 7 to 10 days of illness, but remarkably viral shedding in this condition can occur for up to two months after initial infection. So. Um, of course, for most families whose child is in daycare, it would be impractical to keep them out for two months, but it's really important, I think, to let parents know that there is this prolonged viral shedding and a lot of patients who have this and that they need to be careful about hand washing and they need to share that with schools and daycares that they should just be really careful and not um, try to limit you know, saliva swapping at home and things like that. Another example of these pustules and vesicles, which, as I mentioned, sometimes can be quite subtle unless you look up close. Case two. This is a 15-month otherwise healthy boy, patient who came to see me um, my practice in Portland before I came here, and he presented with four days of fussiness and what his mom described as a terrible diaper rash. Now, I see a lot of diaper rash, as I'm sure all of you do, and I see a lot of terrible diaper rash, but so when, when she said that, I sort of thought, okay, you know, um, poor kid, but I didn't think much of it. Um, no history of diaper rash previously, and then more recently, he had developed a couple days of rash on the, on the face and the extremities. You can see here vesicles and pustules on the dorsal hands, dorsal forearms, crusted vesicles covering the back of the trunk, and here's his terrible diaper rash. It really was awful. <laughs> Poor baby. So this is atypical hand, foot, and mouth disease caused by Coxsackievirus A6. So the picture of this diaper area, there we, we had a mini outbreak in Portland of Coxsackievirus A6, and I saw dozens of kids whose diaper area looked like this, I and mean, it was, it's pretty miserable for them. So let's talk about this atypical hand, foot, mouth. So in March of 2012, which was my fellowship year, end of my fellowship year, CDC reported a growing number of severe and extensive cases of hand, foot, and mouth disease in North America attributed to Coxsackievirus A6. So a lot of these children have widespread vesicles encompassing more than 10% body surface area much more perioral and truncal involvement than a typical hand, foot, and mouth. Oftentimes the dorsal hands and feet are much more involved than the palms and soles. Um, although there are cases reported of A6 with very large bullae on the palms and soles, and I'll show you some photos. Um, 63 cases in a short period of time were spontaneously reported to the CDC from all around the United States by healthcare providers. The vast majority of children were young, so over half, less than two years of age, um, but 24% were adults aged 18, most of whom were a parent or a daycare worker who had had exposure to young children. 
So I'm going to show you an, uh, a whole collection of photographs from patients that I saw with Coxsackie A6. Um, I've seen several of these kids since coming to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and my hunch is that it's just a matter of time before we get a pretty big wave here because the incidence is really on the rise in the United States as a whole. So. This was a, an almost four-month-old who presented with widespread vesicles. Initially, there was concern for varicella. Um, and it, if you look carefully, you can see the vesicle, the vesicular quality of these is most evident on the dorsal hands and feet and in the flexures. And I took this picture to really demonstrate the fact that the vesicles are much more situated on the dorsal hands. And the palm, she had one little pink macule on the palm, but her palms and soles were essentially spared. So that can be, make this a tricky diagnosis if you're not prepared for the fact that the distribution of Coxsackie A6 is really quite different from typical hand, foot, and mouth. Here's another case reported in the literature. So this atypical hand, foot, and mouth is the, the one nice thing about it is that although the skin manifestations are severe, the rates of systemic complications are very low. So you can really reassure parents that although it's going to be a miserable week or two at home, that the prognosis is excellent. These children do really well. Um, they have to stay on top of hydration, pain control, but um, these kids do really, really well. I didn't actually see any systemic complications in all the cases I saw in Portland. Um, so it's interesting because your typical hand, foot, and mouth, milder cutaneous illness, but higher chance of um, meningitis, encephalitis, pneumonitis, things like that. So for these kids with atypical Coxsackie virus, it's really supportive care. They need Vaseline twice daily. Um, you have to be a little bit careful with very young infants in the summer months. If they're getting, they really need to be greased with Vaseline um, to help promote healing of these vesicles. Um, but you need to make sure they're in a temperature-controlled environment because very young infants who can't thermoregulate well, sometimes Vaseline plus a very hot environment, they can actually um, become hyperthermic. So um, beware of that. And zinc oxide, barrier paste in the diaper area, hydration, acetaminophen if needed for pain control. And this heals without scarring in typically 10 to 14 days. So this is a great article. Some of you may have seen it. Um, it's originally published in 2013. Um, this is a big batch of mostly pediatric dermatologists who described uh, the cutaneous findings in this enterovirus outbreak and coined the term eczema coxsackium. So these authors reviewed, uh, they collected 80 patients from seven institutions. And they noted that the median age of patients affected was one and a half years, but with um, a range all the way up into the adolescent age group. The equal incidence, males and females, and they, they described these widespread vesicles, bullae or erosions, that over half of children had greater than 10% body surface area involved, and, and over a third had greater than 26% body surface area involved. And then only half of patients had anything inside the mouth. So this entity, eczema coxsackium, um, I've seen many, many cases of it. It's a really interesting phenomenon where the vesicles and erosions localize to areas of previous atopic dermatitis. And it's, if you're not aware of this entity, um, you, this can look very similar to eczema herpeticum in the sense that it's vesicles within areas of prior eczema. The difference being that typically the coxsackie vesicles are a little more superficial a little more confluent, whereas eczema herpeticum, usually very punched out, discrete, circular um, erosions coalescing into sort of scalloped plaques that have that typical herpetic um, scalloped border. Coxsackie virus is usually uh, more poorly defined, superficial crusting and erosions. So over half of the 80 patients that they described in this outbreak um, that's ongoing in North America presented with this eczema coxsackium subtype. Another example, so um, flexures are obviously very commonly involved in this condition. Periorally, particularly in kids who have a history of irritant perioral dermatitis. 
Now, the second subtype of Coxsackie A6 infection um, morphology is this Giannotti Crosti-like presentation, which I also saw very commonly, particularly in older children, although the authors didn't describe that. In my experience, teenagers are much more likely to present with this subtype. So you can see this is a 16-year-old with very edematous papules and sort of um, vesicles and pseudovesicles on the extensor knees and elbows. Very extensive involvement on the tops of the hands and extensive perioral involvement, although he had nothing inside his mouth, his poor lips were really involved. Here's a slightly older child. I think this child was about six, um, again with involvement on the knees. Another subtype that was described is this petechial or purpuric subtype, so the macules sometimes can have a purpuric quality to them. And then here are those large acral bullae that um, I was referencing. So I saw several infants who had bullae encompassing almost the entire sole, um, which obviously is quite uncomfortable. So we treat this by um, prepping and lancing these blisters to relieve the pressure and prevent um, or try to minimize extension. So one clue that if you can try to burn these images in your mind, typical hand, foot, and mouth, you'll see that so-called herpangina, that's the ulcers and erosions, um, classically on the posterior um, pharynx, sometimes the palate. But with atypical Coxsackie virus A6, it's perioral, and you almost see, never see anything in the mouth itself. And what's really tricky about this um, atypical Coxsackie virus is that it's, it's extremely difficult to isolate this virus on culture. So we cultured, I probably cultured, I don't know, 40 or 50 kids when I was in Portland and came up with a positive in about six of them. So there have been a number of studies looking at the rates of, um, of culture positivity and they're less, it's about 10% of kids with PCR confirmed Coxsackie A6 where you can isolate this from the posterior pharynx or from vesicle fluid. So um, there's some theories about why the A6 subtype is so hard to, um, to, to culture out, but essentially we just stopped sending cultures of these kids and made the diagnosis clinically um, because the rates of false negatives were so high. Um, but there have been a, a several really good case series done where vesicle fluid and pharynx, was, pharynx were swabbed um, and they were run through PCR and essentially 100% were positive. So at some point, hopefully, we'll have more rapid detection, more accurate detection. But right now, this is essentially a clinical diagnosis. Julie? The, oh, yeah. I'm sorry, can I interrupt? But yeah. Can you go back one picture? Yeah. So the kid on the right, had I seen that kid in clinic, I would just call impetigenized something. Right. I, right. From a viral whatever, I would have waved my hand and said, viral exanthem with impetigo. Yes. And treated her like that. Yeah. Um, so, do so. They, they can, although it's rare in my experience. So the giveaway would be, you know, if, if you saw the child on the right in your office and that's, and all you saw was the face and her, the rest of her body was totally clear, then I think impetigo would be a reasonable diagnosis and easy enough to swab that for bacterial culture if you want to prove that. Um, but these kids, if they have perioral involvement, they're going to have something in the diaper area. They're typically going to have something on extensor extremities or trunk. You'll see something somewhere else, but the perioral involvement is just a tip-off to get you thinking along the right track. Sure. Um, this is another clue, as I mentioned, the severe diaper area involvement is really characteristic of the Coxsackie A6. So another example, perioral involvement, the child on the left, so this is his these are his buttocks. So you might think impetigo, and then you look in the diaper area, and oh, you know, you realize it's a different story. And if you look at his wrist there, you can see um, he does have some palm vesicles, um, but also quite a bit of involvement on the extremities themselves. And then you got to know most 
parents are not Coxsackie A6 immune. So I've unfortunately seen quite a few parents pick this up from their children. Um, and um, some very well-known and respected senior pediatric dermatologists have acquired this from patients. So um, be, be careful. So this is uh, because is, this is so highly contagious. When I see children who I think have Coxsackie A6, I actually wear a mask and I have my nurses wear gowns and we're just careful in clinic. And it's hard because sometimes half the time, you know, the kid's been in the room coughing and sneezing for 20 minutes before you walk in and it's sort of like, okay, well, you do it to make yourself feel better. But um, you can assume most adults are immune to typical hand, foot, and mouth. And that's Coxsackie A16 or Enterovirus 71 or 2. But this A16 strain really only recently came to North America. Um, it historically was in Africa and other continents, so most of us are not A6 immune, so just be aware of that. What do you do about waiting room issues? Say again? Waiting room issues. Waiting room issues, yes. So um, it's really hard. If I know that a child, you know, if this diagnosis is suspected, we pull that kid in right away and put him in a separate room. I typically, once I've had a kid with Coxsackie virus in my clinic, I usually don't use that room for the rest of the day just because of the droplet issue, assuming they haven't had a mask on. Um, but it's really hard. I mean, it's part of why I wanted to talk about it this morning because I think the awareness, you know, this is an unusual and emerging enough thing that oftentimes this diagnosis is not suspected and we're kind of caught unaware when they um, come into clinic. But I suspect it anytime I see a referral that says, question, varicella, six-month-old, or, you know, something vesicular, um, disseminated herpes simplex, and an otherwise healthy child is highly unlikely, but this is much more common. So um, a one late complication of Coxsackie virus infection, the typical hand, foot, and mouth, as well as the A6 subtype is this onychomedesis. So onychomedesis means shedding of the nail plate. And this is quite common um, and can occur. There's a really wide time range that this can occur. So I've seen this happen as soon as two weeks after the Coxsackie virus infection, which I still can't quite wrap my head around what the mechanism is there because most of the um, hypotheses around this um, suggest that this is due to nail matrix arrest during the Coxsackie virus acute infection, which in my mind would make sense that that would then occur weeks to months later because you have to grow out the nail matrix. And that's the, the average time frame, I would say, is about six weeks after the illness. But I've seen this happen rapidly, and it's reported in the literature as happening very soon after the infection. Um, but it can be very disconcerting because sometimes kids will lose all 10, all 20 of their nails will shed. And poor parents who've just been through this horrible <laughs> Coxsackie virus, then their kids' nails are falling off. And so um, the good thing is you can ref you can reassure them that this is, this is um, um, temporary, that the nails will grow back in normally, um, there will be no long-term sequelae from this. Onychomedesis can occur in the aftermath of other viral infections, but Coxsackie virus is particularly common culprit. Here's another example of a toddler. Sometimes it's only a few nails. Okay, case three. This was a patient who presented to me, six years old, previously healthy, two-week history of itchy bumps and blisters on the lower legs, ankles, and tops of feet. Nothing on the oral, ocular, or genital mucosa. He's, he's well-appearing, afebrile, no skin pain, no recent medication exposures. The only pertinent piece of history is the family recently moved into a new apartment. So... The localization, the distribution of these lesions is the biggest clue here. So these are flea bites. And um, so young children, particularly with fleas, often have bolus bite reactions. And this, the thought is that it has to do with the immaturity of their immune system and the fact that um, 
after subsequent, you know, over time, repeated exposures to flea bites, they develop a very brisk hypersensitivity reaction to the bite. Anecdotally, although again, I, I couldn't find any real evidence of this in the literature, I think African American children are particularly prone to this. It's really interesting if you do a PubMed search or a Google search of this, um, you'll find a lot of um, darker skin types, Im you know, images of darker skin type um, affected by this, and uh, as in my case um, in Portland. So this is an interesting phenomenon. Here's a case in point, another um, patient with a darker skin type. I'm not, you know, that's just anecdotal, but um, I think it's interesting. Cat and dog fleas are the most common causes of this, although there are many different types of flea species out there. Um, and the part of the reason is that fleas can live without a host for over three months. So the typical history of this is a family who moves into a new apartment, and there's carpeting in the apartment, and those fleas just hang out there and they are happy as can be for months without a meal until a new family moves in and then the fleas go right after the child typically. So they develop urticarial wheels and papules which often progress to tense bullet. And the clustering around the ankles and lower legs is really typical. It's basically the jumping range of fleas. Um, so you treat this with high potency topical steroid ointments, hydroxyzine. They have to deflee their pets, and they have to get an exterminator in the house. Okay, case four. Eight-year-old girl with a four-week history of itchy bumps. Parents recently bought her a new mattress on Craigslist. Never buy a mattress on Craigslist. <laughs> so look at the distribution of these papules. This is a real clue. Do you see the way they're sort of in a, a, a line? So these are bed bug bites. So bed bugs are small, wingless, three to five millimeter nocturnal blood-sucking insects. <laughs> they are visible with the naked eye, um, in contrast to a lot of the other critters that cause um, arthropod bite reactions. They, they are particularly hardy. They can survive in any climate. They can survive one year without a blood meal. So um, they're, they're just really pesky. Um, they have these temperature and carbon dioxide sensors, which allow them to hone towards sleeping humans. So they will move, they will come out of crevices and cracks, um, and they will find a human host in bed. Um, female insects deposit eggs on rough surfaces, cracks and crevices, and they thrive in apartment buildings, hotels, and homeless shelters. So. Um, I don't, I'm sure probably some of you read, there was a, several years ago, there were outbreaks of bed bugs in Manhattan. Um, just, they spread like crazy in apartment buildings because they can go right through cracks adjoining one apartment to the other. And their temperature honing devices are so good that if their family that they've been happily um, feeding on goes away, they just find their way out through a crack into the apartment next door and there you go. Here's what a bed bug looks like. They have these sort of flattened bodies. That gives you a sense of scale. So they're not actually that small. <coughs> and so here are typical bed bug stains. So oftentimes patients have been told if they buy a used mattress, they've been told that it's just like a little mildew staining, but this is actually bed bug fecal stains. And here's what an uh, active bed bug infestation of a mattress looks like. You see um, kind of grayish spots on the mattress that can look a bit mildewy, um, but then you can, if you look closely, you see these kind of brownish yellow bugs along the seams. So interestingly, there were very few bed bugs in the United States in the 40s and 50s because of DDT exposure. These bed bugs are particularly sensitive to DDT. Um, I couldn't, you know, there's a, re a reference to that in a number of articles. I couldn't find an exact mechanism of how the how the bed bugs are getting exposed to the DDT, but they are somehow, or they were. Um, but in the past three years, there's been a 500% increase in incidence in the United States. Um, interestingly, it's not. These are not. A associated with poor cleanliness. So in contrast to something like scabies, which is more common in families of lower socioeconomic status, poor hygiene conditions, um, bed bugs thrive in clean environments. Um, 
They typically leave behind grouped or edematous, uh, grouped or linear edematous urticarial papules that in dermatology we call that breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and papules are usually larger and more edematous than mosquito bites. And interestingly, these actually can cause really severe asthma exacerbations in kids with reactive airways, and they can rarely have been reported to cause anaphylactic reactions. Bed bugs also, you'll read, they can, um, they can carry HIV hepatitis, um, and you can actually isolate the virus from the bed bug, the blood that a bed bug has ingested. There's never been a reported case of transmission from one human to the other of bed bugs, but it's pretty creepy. Um, some, we, as a joke, um, one year at a pediatric dermatology meeting, we were sort of, um, a, a group of us were going around talking about if we had to get infested by one bug, what would it be? And most of us are particularly creeped out by bed bugs because they, in theory, could be a vector for blood-borne illness. Here's an example. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, dessert. <laughs> Okay, case five. Six-year-old boy with a five-month history of very itchy bumps. Started after he got bitten by many mosquitoes at a campfire in August. And the bumps have con continued to come and go since then. Through, throughout the entire winter, this child is getting recurrent crops of intensely itchy papules. No pets at home. No other family members affected. This is papular urticaria. So this is a diagnosis that I think many pediatricians don't have um, a whole a lot of familiarity with. And I think in part it's because um, it's a sort of a confusing concept. And until recently, I think there were not, there were not any really great review articles and publications describing this condition. <laughs> So let's talk about it. So it's essentially a hypersensitivity reaction to arthropod bites. Two to 10 years of age is the typical age group. Um, it, the most commonly implicated insects are cat fleas, mosquitoes, and bed bugs. And so what this is is a cyclical reactivation of previously acquired bites. It's, there's thought to be circulating insect antigen that stimulates cutaneous T cells in previously sensitized sites. So what's really interesting is that the lesions of papular urticaria are indistinguishable from new bites. Typically, they'll be in the same locations. So if a child gets, the, the typical history that I see is a child gets really, really bitten by a whole crop of mosquitoes. Um, and then these bites just cyclically reactivate over the course of months to sometimes even years. And the thought is that, again, this is due to the immaturity of the child's immune system and that it takes a while. The first exposure, generally, infants under the age of one do not get papular urticaria because they've not yet been sensitized to these insect antigens. And then there's this period of time where children are developing they become sensitized, and over time, they develop tolerance to those insect antigens. And if you if you think about it, very few adults get rip-roaring bite reactions the way young children do. And that's because over time, we get exposed to these insect antigens enough that our immune systems stop sort of hyper-reacting. But the 2 to 10-year age range, these kids have these very exuberant reactions. And that circulating antigen, and sometimes re-exposure in very um, even even very infrequent re-exposure to that insect antigen. So say this child who got, had 50 mosquito bites at the campfire, two months later gets one mosquito bite, all of the previous mosquito bite lesions will reactivate. And so it can, very, can be very confusing to parents because they'll say, there's no way he got 50 mosquito bites, it's January. And the reason is that it's the old ones that reactivate. So this is a nice article from, 2000, from Pediatrics 2006. Um, Bernard Cohen is a pediatric dermatologist at Johns Hopkins. And he described papular urticaria and, and put this mnemonic to it, the scratch principle. And the, the title, A New Approach to Papular Urticaria, I think is really his attempt to clarify this diagnosis for pediatricians and give them some concrete things to look for. Because previously, I think it was quite enigmatic.
So um, scratch is an acronym. S stands for symmetric. C, clustered or crops. R, rover not required. A is age specific. T, target lesions and time. C, confused parent, pediatrician, and H, a household with a single family member affected. So we'll go through each of these. So symmetric. The lesions are almost always symmetrically distributed on the extremities, and the neck is very common. The scalp is a common area of involvement for young children, toddlers in particular, um, who are close to the ground, just because flying insects and jumping insects can get up to their head more easily. Plus, they also have less hair. Um, bites along sock lines or waistlines are very common, and the palm soles and diaper areas are typically spared in comparison to scabies. So the clustered crops of different coloration, um, so breakfast, lunch, and dinner, it's the same thing as bed bug bites. Um, they're grouped and they're linear in their configuration. They're very itchy, they're red, they're edematous, and they develop a vesicle, and then they get scratched off and they end up with a crust. More chronic lesions are hyperpigmented, so almost purpley violaceous, particularly in kids with more pigment in their skin. So that's the S, the R, rover not required. So only a remote history of pet exposure is sufficient in the case of fleas. So remember, papillary urticaria can be caused by a number of different insects, but in the case of fleas, sometimes it's very infrequent intermittent exposure to a pet. So if a child goes to see Aunt Susie once every few weeks for a brief period of time, that's and that and and her cat um, has fleas, that very intermittent exposure is enough to keep this really going. Um, children with exposure to mosquitoes are bed bites. There may be no history of pet exposure at all. Age specific. So as I mentioned, this really this condition does not occur in infants um, because their immune systems have to be sensitized first. And then typical age group is two to ten years. The prevalence in my my experience is two to three years old is the most common age range for the most common age group for this. Target lesions and time. So um, kids with darker skin types often develop these sort of um, target-like lesions, although they don't they don't really look dusky like erythema multiforme, but they sort of have a, an outer ring and a central crust. Um, and the time part of this is it takes weeks to years for papillary urticaria to resolve. C is confused parent and pediatrician. Parents oftentimes, you know, they'll just keep saying, but we don't have fleas. Um, and the expression of disbelief and confusion is nearly universal among parents of children with papillary urticaria. And Bernard Cohen in his article said, in fact, um, this is so universal that we think it should probably be a diagnostic criterion because um, it's, it's very hard to wrap their parents, it's hard for parents to wrap their heads around the fact that their children, their child might not be, be getting actively bitten in the month of February or March, but that these papules are still an insect bite hypersensitivity reaction. And the diagnosis, oh, and the implication that there might be arthropods in the home is often very insulting and upsetting to parents who have to tread really lightly around this diagnosis. Um, and the diagnosis is often disappointing. I see this very often where parents have been to see three or four different doctors, specialists before coming to see me, and then they're like, you're kidding. You're telling me this is just bite reactivation it was just sort of underwhelming to them and disappointing um, the last letter in the scratch acronym is household so typically the child is the only one affected um, negative family history is actually helpful in arriving at the diagnosis although again that can be hard for parents to wrap their head around um, and you can explain that every family member has a different threshold for becoming sensitized and that most older children and adults have already been through this process of immune system priming sensitization and then tolerance um, and I will mention I didn't include slides on this but if you buy biopsy lesions of papular urticaria, um, they often look indistinguishable from insect bites, but the more chronic lesions um, have, they convert, sort of like atopic dermatitis, convert into a Th2 response. So if you do stains and identify the inflammatory cells, you'll see a large preponderance of Th2 cells, whereas the acute lesions, you see more eosinophils. Um, and so biopsy sometimes is helpful, although typically I make this diagnosis clinically.
So management, um, insect repellents, protective clothing, avoidance of outdoor play at dusk, um, aggressive flea and bedbug eradication at home, consider professional pest management if there's a thought that there's ongoing infestation in the house, but there often is not, um, particularly in the case of kids who've been bit by mosquitoes in the summer months. Um, paritis control is helpful, um, and then patience is probably the biggest factor here. So typically I prescribe a high-potency steroid like betamethasone ointment, hydroxyzine. I see the patient regularly. Sometimes I actually use protopic on the kids who have really chronic um, papules, and that works quite well. Reassuring parents that eventually their child will develop immune tolerance and these lesions will resolve um, is important. Okay, so... Um, <clears throat> Eight-month-old, otherwise healthy male. Two-month history of itchy bumps in the armpits, primarily. Here's his other side. Here's his foot. Anybody see that? What's that? That's a burrow. So this is scabies. So I'll go back to show you those pictures now that you know what this is. So crusted papules and nodules in the armpits and burrows on the soles of the feet. So scabies has been around for thousands of years. Um, it's thought actually to have brought, been brought by, to the United States by Columbus and early settlers, early white settlers. Um, more common in children than adults, spread via skin-to-skin -skin contact with affected individual or by contact with fomites such as bedding or clothing, um, disproportionately affects women and children worldwide, probably because of the close contact um, that's required to acquire this condition. It's more common among patients of lower socioeconomic status. It can actually be transmitted vertically during childbirth. So these guys are tiny. They're 400 micrometers. You can actually see it with, if, as, if you know what you're looking for with a naked eye, you can actually, in a, at the end of a burrow, see a tiny little grayish-black speck if you look really carefully. But it's really hard to see these guys with a naked eye. Uh, they are an obligate human parasite, and they reside in burrowed tunnels in human skin. And the burrowed tunnel is the burrow. So in infants and children, you'll see crusted papules, vesicles, and pustules on the palm soles, trunk, and abdomen. Scalp is often involved, and, and nodules in axilla and groin folds are really characteristic. Um, the burrows, pustules, and grouped papules on the palms and soles are a giveaway. Often misdiagnosed as eczema, and lack of rash in family members does not exclude this diagnosis. I can't tell you the number of times I diagnosed scabies in an infant, and the parents have said, no, no, we're totally clear, and then I'll just politely ask them if I can look at their palms and soles, and you see, you find the little burrow. Um, treatment is permethrin cream applied at bedtime, washed off in the morning, repeated in one week. Um, I do sometimes prescribe ivermectin if the family has failed permethrin, um, but most permethrin failures are due to improper application. I really emphasize to parents that if they put the permethrin on at bedtime, if anyone gets up in the middle of the night, uses the bathroom and washes their hands, they have to reapply, and that I think is a big source of permethrin failure because um, scabies so often lives on the hands and you have to treat all household contacts. So there's at really actually zero point to treating a child unless you treat every family member. So this is one of these instances where it's very time consuming in clinic, but when I diagnose a child with scabies, my nurse gets the names and date of birth of every household member, and I call in prescriptions for all of them. And it's one of these things where there's no great answer to it. By the book, they should be your patient, but if you don't do it, the family won't get better and it's I initially in my practice sort of try to get parents to go to see their primary care doctors and it just never worked so I just uh, that's the way I do it I write prescriptions for everyone um, I suppose there's a little bit of risk involved in doing that but I feel like it's um, it's worth it because otherwise the, the child won't get better they have to wash bedding or clothing or bag it for just 72 hours the scabies mites don't survive very long off of a off of a human host in comparison to fleas and bedbugs. So, um, here are more pictures of infants with scabies. So, sometimes can really look eczema like, although the discrete papules should be a tip off. And then 
just look carefully at the palms and soles. You can side light them with your office light. That can be really helpful. Here's an infant um, with crusted papules. And if you look at the mom's hand and her first web space, she has papules there. Here's an example of more subtle burrows on the soles of the feet. And so when you scrape these, I actually, over time now, I rarely scrape scabies because I can just diagnose it by finding burrows. But if you're going to scrape, really the place to scrape is a burrow. Um, if you scrape a, a chronic crusted papule, you're very unlikely to find a mite. But if you scrape a fresh little linear burrow um, and you scrape in the direction of the burrow, you'll get the mite at the end of it. Here's an example of an older child with crusted papules on the soles and on the palms. Look more closely. Very few things cause crusted papules on the palms and soles other than scabies. So it's really a giveaway. Sometimes you don't find a mite, but you find an egg casing that's at the bottom of the field there. And then the nodules that you see in young infants in the diaper area. So for those of you who heard um, the previous talk that I gave talking about Langerhans cell histiocytosis, that's really the differential of nodules in the diaper area is Langerhans cell histiocytosis versus scabies. The vast majority of cases will be scabies, rarely LCH, and there are a few other zebras, but um, this is very common. And sometimes the nodules are really substantive and typically this is in kids who've had scabies infection going for many months and it's sort of again a hypersensitivity reaction okay so just a few quick potpourri cases at the end here four-year-old girl with two-day history of warm exquisitely tender nodules on the soles of the feet and this morning she woke up and she was refusing to walk she went swimming in a hotel swimming pool the day before the nodules appeared anyone seen this this is Pseudomonas hot foot syndrome. So um, this is kind of a fun diagnosis. So basically, this is um, <laughs> this is it's fun because kids do great and they don't get really sick from this. But it's fun when you can make the diagnosis. Um, so Pseudomonas often forms biofilms on the little prickly spines on the bottom of swimming pools, and young children who are playing Marco Polo and jumping around and are bouncing off of the sole of of the of the swimming pool with their soles of their feet get little tiny um, inoculations of Pseudomonas into their skin. And their stratum corneum, the outer layer of skin, is much thinner than adults. So most adults who go into a contaminated swimming pool will not develop this, but the younger children will. Um, and, and it's not typically seen in infants because they're not coming into contact with the surfaces. Um, so it's school-aged children is, is typical. Um, it's more likely in pools that are not being optimally cleaned and managed, so low chlorine content. Um, and these children will actually develop a fever, and their, their soles will be so painful that often they'll refuse to walk. Um, and there have been a number of outbreaks reported after pool parties. And um, interestingly, most of these kids will spontaneously resolve, even without treatment. Um, but Cipro for five days will hasten resolution. Okay, case eight. This is a 13 year old referred to me for um, lip lickers dermatitis. And so she had several month history of worsening scaling and crusting around the mouth. She had a history of eczema as an infant, was actually putting a topical steroid on this. Here she is from the side. So this is impetigo. So impetigo can look, um, can be sort of focal areas of crusting, but sometimes it can be really widespread and chronic. Um, and so I treated her with cephalexin and she was clear a week later. Another example of impetigo, this is otherwise known as the Charlie Chaplin distribution of impetigo. Um, but sometimes the upper lip can be really involved. Okay, case nine, three-year history of um, three-year girl with a two-month history of painful defecation. Parents notice that she's always got her hands down her pants and she's always scratching at her bum. And then when you look, she has this bright red erythema with a little collarette of scale around the anus. So this is perianal bacterial dermatitis. 
caused by staph. So what's interesting about this is that perianal bacterial dermatitis traditionally was, was caused by strep. So perianal strep was common in kids who had had strep pharyngitis. And what happens is the strep, particularly in strep where the treatment is not initiated promptly, the strep pyogenes actually colonizes the GI tract. And then when they poop, the strep kind of sets up shop around the perianal area. And what's interesting is that although strep pharyngitis does not require a lengthy course of antibiotics to resolve a couple of weeks, the perianal variant, oftentimes you have to treat for three or four weeks with oral antibiotics to get rid of it. And what's interesting, there was a um, case series done by a pediatric dermatologist Nanette Silverberg um, more recently swabbed uh, several dozen kids with bacterial perianal dermatitis, and actually 82% of them grew out staph, and the rest were strep. So it seems like there's been a shift where now perianal dermatitis, when caused by bacteria, is more likely to be caused by staph, which is kind of nice because I think that's an easier to eradicate. Oftentimes you can even get rid of this with mupirus ointment for a week or two, and if not, you know, five to max seven days of Keflex. But sending a culture um, is really important in these scenarios. Um, and the pain and burning with defecation is common. Okay, last one. Two-year-old girl with a three-day history of purpuric patches on the palms and soles. Um, her feet are puffy, and she also is refusing to walk. So this is papular purpuric stocking glove syndrome caused by parvovirus B19. So um, you all, I'm sure, know about erythema infectiosum, which is the slap cheek rash that goes along with parvovirus. But this is a parvo manifestation that's um, lesser known. And what's interesting about this condition, um, here's a more um, extreme example, is that in contrast to erythema infectiosum, this, the slap cheek rash occurs after the viremia. So you can reassure parents when their child develops a slap cheek rash, by that point, they're no longer contagious. Papular purpuric, papular purpuric stocking glove is not, um, it's actually different. So when kids have that, develop this edema and the purpura of the palms and soles, they are actively viremic and they're quite contagious during this stage. So they should not be in daycare or school while they have the purpura on their hands and feet. Um, and so they often also will just, you know, complain of pain, which is I think partly from the edema, but then they can also have funny like paresthesias and tingling. Um, um, low-grade fever, sometimes anemia related to the parvo and elevated LFTs, and this spontaneously resolves with supportive care over a week or two. Oftentimes there is some desquamation. Okay, so let's just go back over some of the highlights. So atypical hand, foot, and mouth caused by Coxsackie virus A6 is on the rise in the United States, presents as widespread vesicles and crusted papules with accentuation around the mouth or in the extensor extremities, oftentimes a severe erosive dermatitis in the diaper area, eczema Coxsackie and localized to prior areas of atopic dermatitis. Remember that Giannotti crusty-like presentation, especially in older children. Perioral crusted vesicles are more, much more common in the A6 subtype than intraoral lesions are, and the nail shedding, onychomedesis, may occur afterwards. Flea bites in young children often localize to ankles, legs, and may be very prominently bullous. Bed bugs look for those breakfast, lunch, and dinner, edematous papules. Papular urticaria, insect bite reactivation may complicate arthropod bite reactions, particularly in the two to 10 year age group. Think of this diagnosis in the winter time when there are no pets at home and when the child is the only family member affected. Clues for diagnosing scabies. Look for crusted papules on the scalp of infants, burrows on the palms and soles, nodules in the diaper area. Pseudomonas hot foot syndrome causes exquisitely painful nodules on the soles of feet after contaminated swimming pool exposure. Perianal bacterial dermatitis these days is most likely to be staph. And papular purpuric stocking glove syndrome causes edema and purpura of the hands and feet and occurs during the period of parvovirus viremia. So be careful with contact with family members and classmates. Here are my two little monkeys. Thank you. <laughs> Or was that sufficiently complete? So the last uh, of the Chad Mini Fellowship uh, series will be May 18th. 
and I think it's set up to potentially be a potpourri. So I will open the opportunity for those to email or, or ask on the way out. Yeah, feel free. If there are topics you'd like me to cover, feel free to send me an email. This survey of uncommon presentations of the common and, and uncommon presentations of the uncommon. Thanks. Have a good day, everyone.